I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you set out to tell someone's life story for a purpose, not just because you think they've had maybe an admirable or a technicolor life, but because there might be a lesson in it, I think you have to watch yourself. In a way, you have to look in the mirror and warn yourself not to smarten everything up too much. There's a risk you'll try to make it all fit together too neatly. Maybe you'll be tempted to leave out important bits of the life that don't go with the grain or or smooth out some of the rough edges of the person. In the end, perhaps, just to try to make him or her more likeable. I've been thinking about that a lot because we are telling Harvey Proctor's life story for a reason. I'm fascinated by this idea of what we, all of us, are prepared to do to people we turn into outcasts. But there's nothing neat about his life, and you'd have to leave out an awful lot to make him completely likeable. Even his friend Matthew Paris, who we're going to hear from later, calls him my difficult friend. But I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Obviously, I don't think being difficult is reason enough to crucify someone. But as we get further into Harvey Proctor's story, into events that happened just a few years ago, we're about to put him through something which feels, to me, dangerously close to a modern-day crucifixion. I'm Kerry Thomas, and this is Episode 2 of Pariah from Tortoise Studios. He said that he was over 21. He turned out to be under 21. He was 19. So a quick reminder of where we've got to. At the end of the last episode, in 1987, Harvey Proctor had been turned over by a tabloid newspaper. He'd fallen for a sting involving two male prostitutes. One of them was 19, and that was under age at the time, so his career as an MP was effectively over. But he couldn't resign straight away because there was an election coming up, and his party managers wanted him to cling on until then. Off the back of the sting, he'd been charged by the police with gross indecency, so he had a huge decision to take. Would he plead guilty in court, or would he fight? I'm going to run us through this next bit of the story, then I'll bring my friend and colleague Al Jackson back in as we get closer to here and now. I was advised by colleagues in the House to have as my solicitor at the time, Sir David Nepley, who was quite famous because he'd represented Jeremy Thorpe, and managed to get Jeremy Thorpe off his um, attempted murder allegations in court. 
so I went to him. There was a brilliant book and a TV drama you might remember a couple of years ago about the Jeremy Thorpe case called A Very English Scandal. Hugh Grant playing Jeremy Thorpe for laughs. And you can see why that case made Sir David Napley look like exactly the right man to represent Harvey Proctor. I won't go too far down the wonderful Jeremy Thorpe rabbit hole, but he was the leader of the Liberal Party and he was accused, about 10 years before the time we're talking about here, of hiring a hitman to bump off his gay lover. And in one of those trials of the century which come along every few years, David Napley got him off. The thing about Jeremy Thorpe's defence was that it had looked terrible, really paper-thin. Harvey Proctor thought he had something much better. The Sunday People tape-recorded him to send him into my house on the second and only other occasion when I met him uh, to record a conversation. And in that conversation, he also says, lyingly, that he was over 21. So I thought I had a good defence to the arguments against me. On the face of it, if one of the reasons Harvey Proctor had been splashed all over the papers and charged with gross indecency was that he'd had sex with a man who was underage, and that man was on tape, recorded during the sting, telling Harvey Proctor that he wasn't underage, that surely looked like the beginnings of a solid defence. But of course, his legal team had to agree to run it in court. Sir David cut me off at the knees and said, I had no such defence because there was a lacuna in the law that that provision that applies in the heterosexual case did not apply in the homosexual case. I immediately said, if that is the case, then I must plead guilty. What he means is, if a man had slept with a girl who was underage, but he had no reason to know she was underage... That would have been a defence. But that didn't apply to gay relationships. We talk about a lot of decisions being fateful, and most of them aren't really. But this one, the decision that he was going to plead guilty when the trial came, well, this one really was fateful for Harvey Proctor. So, of course, even now, he plays through in his mind whether David Napley gave him the right advice and why he gave it. It never occurred to me that he might be anti-homosexuality and anti-homosexual, which he was. He concluded that homosexuality was an illness, a sickness, that if you could get the right treatment, all would be well. If I went to a different sister, it may be that I would have got a solicitor who could advise me how to fight the law and recast the law in the same way. But when you've got somebody sitting in front of you who is so magisterial, as he was at that time, and so eminent as Sir David Napoli, um, I think I was given my state of resignation, emotionally resigned, um, because of the battering of the media over months and months and months, um, I was resigned uh, to my fate. Yeah. But it was a brutal decision for you to take, wasn't it? It meant that this, this dream you'd had of being an MP that you'd held since you were quite young... Yes, everything that I'd existed for had gone. Yeah. 
The night before Harvey Proctor's court case, his fellow Conservative MP Matthew Paris gave him a call. You invite him round for dinner. <clears throat> and um, I'm interested because you were far from political soulmates. You probably were about as far apart in the Conservative Party as you could be at that time, I guess. Why did you, why did you invite him round? I never disliked Harvey. Some people in the Conservative Party did, and a lot of people in the Labour Party did. I never disliked him personally. I, I thought that um, he had been pretty unfairly, pretty harshly treated, though not actually within the Conservative Party, and I simply felt very sorry for him. Obviously, being gay myself and um, seeing someone else being crucified for his sexuality uh, made me particularly sympathetic, but it, it, it uh, amazed me how few people were, were coming to Harvey's defence. Well, as far as I could see, almost nobody, except the Conservative whips, uh, came to Harvey's defence. And I, I knew that the court case was coming up and I thought he must be in a very depressed state of mind. So I just picked up the telephone and said, come over and have something to eat. And I invited a lawyer friend, a barrister, a criminal barrister, uh, a very good friend, who I thought could give Harvey a bit of advice. And he did. And his advice was absolutely right. He told Harvey he wouldn't go to prison, and nor did he. And I sensed that Harvey was depressed in the dangerous way, not in the sense of sort of um, gnashing teeth and rending garments and tears and all that kind of thing, but a sort of strange, flat, almost featureless depression, which uh, is particularly dangerous. I think I've gone on record as saying that he probably saved my life. Because by the time you got to dinner at his place the night before the court case, you were in a bad way. I was at a very low point because that was... 18 months or more of continuous pressure in the media, no respite whatsoever, and having to, towards the end, portray one figure, knowing what I was going to have to do, which is to not stand for re-election in 1987. And so, yes, I was at a very low peak, and, um, and he very kindly sort of um, said, come around for supper the night before I went to my trial, uh, otherwise I, I may not be here now. He, he rang while I was um, opening my bottle of tablets. It's really close, isn't it? Do you want to take a break? Yeah. court heard this morning of Mr Proctor's feelings of shame and despair about the case and with his career now at an end how he had already punished himself more than anything the court could impose. Mr Proctor refused to speak to the press after his court appearance. His solicitor said it had been a traumatic experience for him. A cordon of police was thrown around him to protect him from the crush of journalists. His solicitor said he now had little money and little future. David Chater, News at One at Bow Street Magistrates Court. I want to take a moment here for the record. There's an argument to be had about whether Harvey Proctor should have been charged at the time with gross indecency. And there's that big question about whether he could have fought the charges, pleaded not guilty. But whatever happened then, 
he wouldn't be charged now. His offences wouldn't be offences now, and the criminal record he got has been wiped. But what doesn't get wiped, and perhaps this is the really important thing, is the scandal that ran for so long because he couldn't resign until the election, and the court case at the end of it. It cemented Harvey Proctor's image and his reputation. It doesn't get wiped from the way people remember him or from the newspaper cuttings. He pays for sex with young men. He likes it rough. Those things are going to come back to haunt Harvey Proctor with a vengeance. There's a sort of accounting exercise I've been doing in my head all the time I've been talking to Harvey Proctor. When things get difficult for him, how well or how badly is he treated by the institutions that he deals with? The press, the police, politicians, how did they behave? The press, newspapers, really badly. The police, not well, and actually the worst from them is still to come. Politicians, actually, better than you'd expect. Some of them, anyway. I remember the last day I was in the House of Commons chamber and uh, I was leaving for the last time and some of the whips got me to sit on the front bench. As a show of support? <clears throat> yes. So I knew I had that support. Well, I don't think you get that um, other than being a dedicated member of the Conservative Party and they knew that they could rely on me for votes for Mrs Thatcher. It's actually quite touching what the Whips did, inviting him to sit on the front bench where the government ministers and the grandees sit. It was a sort of constitutional, slightly squeamish man-hug, and Harvey Proctor chokes up every time when he remembers it. But what came next was even more surprising. He was out of a job, of course, and too toxic to be scooped up by someone in business or lobbying. So he opened a shirt and tie shop in south-west London. I remember at the time thinking, what a weird thing to do. He didn't have the cash to set it up on his own, so he relied on the kindness of better-off Tory MPs. And the ones who really went out of their way to help him, they weren't his fellow travellers on the right of the party. It was actually liberal, left Conservatives who organised the whip round and set him up in business. He had one last hurrah of his own choosing in public. There was this amazing programme on Channel 4 at the time called After Dark. It was the last thing on the channel at night. There were a bunch of guests on comfy sofas, there was wine to drink, and it went on as long as it needed to. And how long after this occasion did you realise that it was completely felonious and false? Probably about four months later. Right. And did you put it right? No. Thank you. Nobody asked me to. Harvey Proctor went on it in 1988 to confront a journalist from The Star called Annette Witheridge about a false story she'd written about him under the headline Spank Row MP Urged to Take AIDS Test. The press have got to realise that, like the members of the press, people who happen to sort of take on their time and energy in public life are actually flesh and blood, you know. And we do have families, and we do have friends. And the sort of rubbish that you wrote at that time was deeply hurtful to me, mm. and deeply offensive to me, and deeply hurtful to my mother, my brother, my family, 
and my friends. It was a disgraceful article to write when a man was down. You stuck your stiletto heel into somebody when he was down. He was going to the court, but you had to wring the last drop of blood out of that corpse that was going to that court. It was a very reliable source at the time, one that had never let me down before. And that was nearly it. There was just one more headline-grabbing moment, not of his choosing, a homophobic attack, a nasty one, in 1992 when two men went into Harvey Proctor's shirt shop, asked him if he had any ties for tying up rent boys and beat him up, along with a Conservative MP who was there at the time. The men who attacked him ended up getting six months in jail. Harvey Proctor was fading from view and the shop was struggling. It closed in 2000 and he went to live, eventually, with his partner Terry in the cottage down the end of the unmarked farm track in the middle of the fields that you'd never stumble across by accident. He worked for his friend, the Duke of Rutland, up at Beaver Castle, doing events and arranging press coverage. If he ever spoke to the media, he was always a spokesman for the Duke and Duchess, never Harvey Proctor. And if any journalists from the old days even had his phone number, well, they never rang. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So this isn't the place that was raided? Well, this yes. Is, it is the place that was Because I've come back to live here. Um, here's the house. The white door there straight ahead of you and to the, to the right is, is the bedroom, or a bedroom. And that's where we were, Terry and myself. Uh, I looked out of that window this way to find a police car here. On a Wednesday morning in 2015, Harvey Proctor woke up to find the police at his door. He told Al about it when he gave him a lift from the station a couple of years ago. How did the search evolve that day then? What were they doing in here around us? I can see there's 
what, three or four rooms on the ground floor? Do they go through the lot? And... Oh, absolutely, everything. Uh, not only the, um, the rooms in the house, but through the grounds and into the two stables where I've got storage, not that I've got horses, uh, and, and a big barn, they went through everything. Operation Midland had come knocking. And what's hard to get over if you've ever been to Harvey Proctor's house is just how incongruous it seems. An early morning raid out there in the middle of nowhere, 40 police officers in blue forensics overalls. Well, they very quickly said, we've got a search warrant in connection with Operation Midland. And I had heard about Operation Midland because I had heard on the 18th of December 2014 about the press conference at New Scotland Yard when their superintendent, MacDonald, had said that a person who made allegations uh, against certain figures unnamed, but was credible and true. Al talked to Harvey Proctor about this extensively, so I'm going to bring him in here to help me tell this part of the story. And we've touched on Operation Midland in passing, but now, here it is, it's turned up at Harvey Proctor's front door, so I think we need to explain it properly. It was all triggered by a set of allegations made by one man, and I want to take those two things in turn. So first up, what were the allegations? Well, I think you have to say they were horrific. That's the first thing you've got to say. They went back to the 70s and 80s. Uh, Not only did they involve serious child sex abuse, they involved torture against children and, most shockingly, the murder of children. The police had also been given the name of the perpetrators and those names went to the heart of the British establishment, former heads of security services, senior military figures, politicians, one of which, of course, was Harvey Proctor. And the guy making the claims, he'd been given the pseudonym of Nick, hadn't he? He had, yeah. And he'd been, by that stage, already interacting with campaigners that were asking for witnesses coming forward with historic allegations to be treated better by the police. We knew he was in his 40s. He was actually an NHS manager living near Gloucester. We started eventually to hear of his real identity. And he was a guy called Carl Beach. It could be... Just you with one man. It could be you with lots of men. It could be you and other boys. And as I turned round to see what the noise was, it hit him. I had blood on my hands. I had um, poppies pinned to my chest whilst they did whatever they wanted to do. Must have been about... 11, 12. To remind ourselves, Al, at this point, we were both working on the BBC's investigative programme, Panorama. You'd actually spent quite a long time looking into other allegations of historic sex abuse because the core could kind of come out of that bottle after the Jimmy Savile scandal. But then, Operation Midland, and we get to this amazing turning point, that press conference in December 2014. Yeah, and it, and it was an amazing press conference simply because the police came to a judgment. They said... Carl Beach, Nick, the man making these extraordinary allegations, was credible and true. And the press conference took place only a few weeks after we knew that the police had started interviewing him. So, I mean, this was amazing stuff. The police, normally not wishing to go on the record and say very much, in a press conference, effectively telling you 
this guy was credible and true, you could believe him. And the thing was, it wasn't a slip of the tongue, was it, Al? No, it wasn't, because the you know I was there. There was a long press conference where the officer in charge uh, was saying it and was taking questions about it. And then afterwards, on the recorded interviews with media, the detective in charge, Kenny MacDonald, re- repeated it. Nick has been interviewed over a long period of time by experienced detectives from the Child Abuse Command. And he has also met investigator from the Murder Command. They and I believe what Nick to be saying is credible and true. I think looking back, the difficulty was that little phrase, credible and true, overtook everything, overtook any purpose of that police press conference, which was largely to encourage other people who had similar stories to Beach to come forward. But they came up with that phrase, credible and true, and it absolutely overtook everything. And I guess the effect that that moment had was that anybody who'd had reservations about running this story beforehand, those reservations evaporated. Yeah, absolutely, because you had the police judging him, you had murders being investigated, and it was the most sensational allegations people had probably ever heard the police force outline. So, of course, it was massive. Police investigate allegations that three young boys were murdered by a Westminster paedophile ring more than 30 years ago. Now police are urging other victims to come forward. Sophie, what's called Operation Midland has to be one of the Met's most careful investigations currently. The police have made it clear they are not going to be saying very much at all about this case. And it wasn't just the British media. Media all over the world started running this stuff. When I look back on that moment, I'm conscious that I was in this sort of relatively luxurious position that I was fascinated by Operation Midland, but I didn't have to go off like you did and do all the hard work and gather the evidence and understand properly what was happening so you could make a programme about it. So I just want to pick out a couple of the lines of inquiry that you followed. So let's first go to that the hit and run in Kingston. Tell me about that. Well, unlike the other two murder allegations, this was alleged to have happened in broad daylight outside Carl Beach's school in Kingston, a busy part of London, and he said that a friend of his had been run over by the group, the group that were abusing him, killed, and he'd been bundled in, back into the car and driven away. So I remember going to the British Library and sort of combing through the local newspapers from, from that time and thinking, is there a report of a road traffic accident, something that could perhaps you know, look like that and, you know, Going through those papers, there was nothing that really sort of even could be portrayed as that. Finding teachers from that school, kind of thinking if a child had been run over and killed outside the school at lunchtime, they might have remembered. And and there was really, you know, pretty quickly, there was nothing. And the other point of detail we had in this case, we had the name of the child who'd supposedly been run over, didn't we? Yeah, we, we got to hear that he came up with the name Scott as a possible victim, remembering his classmate. So... As we looked for Scots, asking classmates if they could remember a name of the Scot, we eventually got a full name and tracked that full name down to Australia. And I dialed this number and the guy picked up the phone and said, obviously you're not dead. And he said, no, I'm not. But I think the more important detail was when I started asking him whether the police had actually been in touch with him. You've not heard anything at all about this? No. About your time at Coombe Hill? Not a sort of check call about this guy, Carl, guy that might have been a classmate of yours. I never heard of him. 
so that was a that was a really big moment for us because there were the police doing this huge inquiry and it turned out you'd got to this key witness even before they had. Then the other line of inquiry I remember you spending ages on was Dawn Beach, Carl's ex-wife. You'd had no contact with the police by then at no, all? No, nothing, nothing. I mean, you were the only person who'd, who'd actually talked to me. Again, it was the same picture. When we got hold of her, whilst being sort of careful, quickly establishing that the police hadn't been in touch with her. So the point is, increasingly, from what you were finding out and what you were telling me at the time, this was looking like a very odd piece of police work. People in Operation Midland weren't talking to us directly and their bosses at the Met Police weren't saying anything useful. But then we had this extraordinary meeting with this sort of emissary, this recent ex-cop who was sent out to talk to us. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we wanted to understand this more, I think, is the way to put it. Um, we'd not really got very far with talking to the Met directly. I was asking for an expert voice, and this very senior ex, newly ex-detective, if you remember, came to meet us just in a coffee shop in London. He talked us through it, but the phrase that he came up with, you'll remember, it is along the lines of, with stuff like this, there tends to be no smoke without fire. And my jaw just hit the table, because that's just such a terrible basis for policing, isn't it? Well, it, it seemed to be indicative of what we were discovering. So anyway, there were the police, and, and they really weren't going about their business um, in the way that we would have expected. But what about journalists? Well, just like for the police, this was a difficult time, for challenging time for journalists, because they too were trying to not dismiss allegations like this too soon. In particular, one online site, Xaro, was making a lot of the running and reporting these allegations. And in fact, it was one of their reporters, Mark Conrad, to whom Carl Beach first told his story. Where did the meeting take place? The meeting took place at Selfridges, in the cafe of Selfridges. Uh, I think it's on the third or fourth floor, um, which I thought was a, an unusual place to meet. Uh, I've subsequently discovered that he liked to shop. But, you know, it was a central London venue. It was a very busy cafe, and I thought it was probably not the place to talk about these kinds of allegations. So we ended up wandering off, and we went into Hyde Park, and we had a wander around with a cup of coffee and just sort of chatted generally at that point. Well, what were your impressions of him at that point? Um, my impression of him was that he he was unlike many of the other alleged victims of child abuse, or indeed genuine victims of child abuse that I'd, I'd met. I'd met an awful lot of, of people who'd been, you know, genuinely abused at that point. And um, he he didn't present in exactly the same way, but he did share some of the common characteristics of people who I knew had genuinely been abused as a child. And he was presented as a somewhat nervous character. He's, very, he's an intelligent man, but he was somewhat nervous. Um, he spoke very softly. I had to keep leaning right across the table to speak to him. It was very difficult, you know, in a, in a busy sort of cafe. But he had what appeared to be a tight story at the time, and he stuck with it for quite some time. And the allegations were extraordinary. They're the most extraordinary set of allegations I've ever heard. He talked about not just child abuse, but also violent abuse towards children, not just him, but others, and also eventually allegations of murder. And extraordinary though the allegations were, he initially provided enough circumstantial evidence for me to think that I've got to go off and have a look at this. Sure. So just tell me what he said specifically about Harvey Proctor. So with Harvey Proctor, he named him on the very first day I met him. Um, so the very first meeting that day, which began at Selfridges, he named the three 
senior military figures. And then he moved on to some allegations, extraordinary allegations against um, uh, politicians. And I think Harvey Proctor was either the first or the second name of a politician that he gave me. And there was a real worry at the time in BBC newsroom, and, and I know in other newsrooms too, that places like Exara were the future. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the places like the BBC were being portrayed, particularly on this stuff, as too cautious, uh, too slow and ponderous, and Exara were nimble and they were brave. That was what they were portraying and saying, and they were getting readership. And, of course, for them, that was attractive. To be blunt, this came from from the editor, it was Mark Watts. Says, this need to be seen to be at the forefront of this story the whole time, to be ahead of everybody else, and there were definitely occasions when Exaro, I think, put material into the public domain that wasn't ready to be in the public domain that we that we later dismissed. And but I mean, it that's was too pretty, late. That was that's, out. There. That's a pretty alarming thing to say, isn't it? When it's somebody's reputation that's, yep. that's absolutely in there. yeah. So what's, what's fascinating looking back now, and we didn't know this at the time, was that Exaro had done some of the same work that you'd done, but they'd come up with a really different set of conclusions at the end of it. Yes, it's been very interesting for me talking to Mark Conrad to realise that as we were investigating, we were in the same place sometimes. You've got, I'm just, just, just testing this. You know, yeah. You've got a guy saying, I saw a kid murdered in broad daylight in yeah. the high street in South southwest London. And uh, I was frequently out of school and the rest of it. Very quickly, it could be established that that was, I would say, more than highly unlikely to be true. So yeah. that is a serious dent in that yeah. guy's credibility. And we did that work. But, but, but did you ever challenge him about that? Yes, did you of ever course. Say, yeah, absolutely. So this I, is, I, I don't think this is true. You said that to him. I went back to him and said, look, we found no evidence of this. And of course, his story at the time was, well, of course you haven't. You know, it's been covered up. Um, but I'd gone door to door in the area. I'd done all the newspaper clippings checks. I'd done, sat in the British Library and archives down in, in Kingston. You see, and, we, yet, and, yet, and yet you're still prepared, or the, or the examiner was still prepared to keep running stuff accusing Harvey Proctor and others of murder. Well, no, based, I've, got based on the, there, or, or based, I've got to stop you there, I've got to stop you there, because Exaro never accused Harvey Proctor of murder. Well, they ran the testimony of the guy that did. Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. As yeah. did every newspaper in the country. Yeah, yeah. As did the BBC. Yes. The press, or sections of it anyway, had started behaving in the way the police were behaving. They'd given up on evidence. You know, you've got to keep taking a step back and you've got to keep asking yourself, what evidence do we have here? And keep challenging the evidence. And looking back, there was a point at Exaro when that was not happening enough. Throughout that spring, from January to March 2015, the momentum behind Carl Beach's story ratcheted up. By the day when Harvey Proctor's house was raided by the police, there was, there was almost a frenzy. And it wasn't only his door they knocked on that morning. My wife, who was terminally ill, were in the kitchen having breakfast. And two police came to the door. So I said, how nice to see you. Come along in. And I said, how can I help you? Lord Bramall, one of Britain's most decorated soldiers, told the BBC he was mystified when police raided his home in Surrey. On that very same morning, the police were at the house of the former Home Secretary, Leon Britton. He died just two months earlier, knowing that he was under investigation. So his wife Diana 
was left to deal with all this. They neither told me what it was, for what operation it was. They didn't tell me the nature of the allegations. They came with a search warrant which said the items that they were going to look for. I think it's worth dwelling a bit, Al, on what these raids on Lord Bramall and Lady Britain's homes mean and what they tell us. Because the point is, with, with the best will in the world, Harvey Proctor was a nobody when all this happened. He hadn't been an MP for more than 25 years. He'd been over, overseeing fates and steam engine rallies and sort of Sonnet Lumiere shows at Beaver Castle. But Lord and Lady Bramall and Britain, they're in a different category. The former head of the UK's armed forces and the widow of the former Home Secretary. It looked as if the police were really getting stuck into the establishment. Absolutely. And, of course, that was the thing that they were most afraid of, was being accused of not wanting to go there, you know, to people like this, the former senior military figure, a former Home Secretary. If you're going to show that you're not afraid to go there, who better than two people like this? But then when you looked at their circumstances, uh, Leon Britton dying of cancer, Lord Bramall's wife with dementia and yet they still search them. It tells you what the Met wanted you to to know, is that they were going to go there regardless, I think. Without fear or favour, they would have said. Without fear or favour was the phrase, yeah. I sort of couldn't get my head round the fact of what they were doing, because you are in a state of sort of animated shock. And I couldn't even say, why are you here? I couldn't say... This is not a legal search warrant because, of course, you can't do a search warrant for somebody who is dead. I was just frozen to the spot. I was frozen to the spot most of the day. I couldn't go round the house while they did it because I couldn't bear to do so, so I sat looking through the letters of condolence and trying to reply to some of them. Whilst the police were searching the house? While the police were searching the house. I just... I was totally alone. I didn't really know how to deal with it. I had no experience of this sort of thing. I mean, a major criminal allegation against somebody who was you know, my beloved husband and who just died. Mm. I sat there, I think, in one place somewhere there, and they said, oh, well, allegations have been made. I said, oh, really? Against who? They said, against you. So I said, what allegations? Well, all they would tell me, and all they would tell me for two months was that 40 years ago I had abused, unspecified, an underage male. Now, that's all they would say. And what sort of time in the morning was it? Early morning was this? Did you say it was about 10 o'clock in the morning? Nine o'clock. Yeah, 9 o'clock. And at that, that moment, and they said, and we've got a warrant to search your house, and within a, a few minutes, 20 policemen came in and for 10 hours... They took everything apart in this room. Ten hours? Mm. And what did you have to do during that time yourself? What, just watch it? Or? M- move my wife around in a wheelchair to so get her out of the thing. She kept on saying, have I done something? I mean, she was fairly far gone. Have I done something wrong? So I said, no, you haven't done anything wrong. My daughter was here. And she was got out, oh, how many children, how many grandchildren did I have, how many great-grandchildren, and had she ever seen me alone, alone with them? I mean, the whole thing was absolutely monstrous. I mean, you're, you're, and, you're, uh, you're laughing about it now, but, I mean, that's a, 
a question to your daughter that's incredibly awful, um, awful for her to yeah, think about. She said they were quite polite, but I mean, they were, you know, they were dreadful uh, questions. I don't know what you thought at the time, but once in a while you'd step back and you'd look at the range of people who were caught up in this whole Operation Midland investigation, and it was really hard not to wonder if there weren't some other agendas being played out there. I think that's right. I think you, you were left sort of looking for, for reasons. It was you know, only natural to try, try to do that. And then you start to look at the names and you think, well, Harvey Practor's gay, Leon Britton, a high-profile Jewish politician, Lord Bramall, the very epitome of an establishment figure. So you're starting, and I was certainly starting to think, is that the reason these allegations are being made, some, from homophobia, some anti-Semitism, anti-establishment feelings? And, of course, when, you, when that comes into your mind, you start to wonder whether the police, for whatever reason, are prepared to be accomplices to those types of prejudices. We don't know how the police thought their way through all those ethical and moral dilemmas. We don't really know if they thought about them very much at all. Officially, all we got was a lot of talk about pursuing their investigations without fear or favour. And in the end, whatever they thought, whether they had qualms or not, the raids on Lord Bramall's home and Lady Britain's went ahead on the same day that 40 police officers raided Harvey Proctor's cottage. And his mind went back to the scandal which had wrecked his career as an MP nearly 30 years earlier. One of the things I was talking to the police about, knowing what had happened in 1987, was, um, is my name going to get into the media? And I was advised that it would not. And so when the police left at 11 o'clock, having had the police in my house for 15 hours, I, I, I was obviously upset. I was concerned. I knew I hadn't done anything, but I didn't know quite which way this was going. I made myself a cup of tea and a sandwich because I needed not during the day. And I went to bed with the television on. The editor's view was... This has cleared the public interest bar now for naming this individual as somebody who's had his home searched. This is Mark Conrad again from the news agency XRO. Not naming him as somebody who we think committed these crimes, but somebody who'd had his home searched. But of course, there's a problem with that, isn't there? It gets you past the legal threshold for publication. There is a public interest in doing that. There's a public interest argument you can make. I'm not saying it's necessarily the one that you go for. But... In my view, it was inevitable, therefore, once we'd named him, that people would begin to think the allegations might be true. And I think looking back, that was a mistake to name Harvey Proctor at that point. Were you against it at the time? I wasn't. Everyone, a lot of people ask me this. I wasn't either for it or against it. We had a really detailed discussion about... You must have had an opinion. Is the, you're about to name, you're about to put a guy's name into the public domain, yep. accused of three murders. Yeah based on the account of a guy that you've interviewed at length and taken to the police, yep. you must have had a view on it. Well, I didn't take him to the police. But, well, um, sorry. Yeah. Went, you went to the police with Well, him. I expressed not, it in just yeah. those terms. I mean, yeah. at, at the meeting on that day of the police searches, that's exactly how I put it. You know, And I was reminding people, this is, this is serious stuff now. We're getting to the point where if you put people's names into the public domain, you know, we have to have very good reason to do so. I went to bed with the television on. 
At seven o'clock next morning, I woke up to see my face on BBC News looking down at me in bed. Police investigating alleged child sexual abuse by establishment figures in the 1970s and 80s have raided the home of a former Conservative MP. Officers searched Harvey Proctor's house near Grantham early yesterday morning. He's denied involvement in any paedophile. For years, he's lived quietly on a country estate in Leicestershire. Today, Harvey Proctor, former MP... So, my partner Terry and I had a discussion about what to do about it. And my instinct was to say, these said soonest mended, say nothing, keep well away. Uh, Terry and I had a 10 minute conversation about it. And he said, well, it didn't do much good last time. And I paused on that and considered that and decided, okay, I'll give it a go. I'll ring the BBC, the Today programme, and say, do they want to interview me? Fully believing, one, I would never get through to the Today programme, and two, if I did, they would not wish to interview me. Well, I did get through to them. I have not been part of any rent boy ring with cabinet ministers, other members of parliament, or generals, or the military. Looking back at that period after you first came into the Commons, which is the period we're talking about, very late 70s into the 80s, were you ever aware yourself that there was paedophilia or the sexual abuse of young people? Did you ever have reason to believe that that was going on in an organised way, even if you weren't part of it? Absolutely not. No. And if I'd have known about it at the time, I would have contacted the police. Just let me ask one final thing. We're presumably uh, correct in assuming that you will assist the police to the best of your ability in this matter. The police wished to interview me. They talked in terms of that interview taking place in a matter of weeks. I asked for that interview to take place at the earliest opportunity. With all the allegations about him that were swirling around and after not many hours sleep to recover from the police raid the day before, I can't think of any lawyer who would have advised Harvey Proctor that it was a good idea to do a live interview. It was probably borderline reckless. And all the more so because of one massive missing piece of the jigsaw. He still didn't know exactly what Carl Beach said he'd done. And he wouldn't find that out for another two months when he was about to be interviewed by the police. Three days before, I'd been given a police document uh, upon which the interview in June was going to be based. My solicitors, who were based in Leicester, invited me there to their office so that I could read the document in their presence. because they were fearful if they emailed it to me of how I might react. In terms of what you might do to yourself? I think that that's true.
What that document made clear for the first time was that Harvey Proctor wasn't accused of being an ordinary member of the extraordinary VIP paedophile ring. He was the most vicious of all. Carl Beach said he'd seen, with his own eyes, Harvey Proctor commit two murders. The stakes had been raised yet again. And that question, which keeps coming round in his life, to fight or hunker down, that's coming right back at him. Pariah is produced by Hannah Varrell. The sound design is by Carla Patella. It's written by me, Kerry Thomas, and Alistair Jackson. Thanks for listening to this second episode of Pariah. It's made by Tortoise Studios. We make great audio and a whole lot more. We write a daily news email and we hold open news meetings where you can help us decide what subjects to cover. If you go to tortoisemedia.com slash friend and use my code Kerry50, that's C-E-R-I-5-0, you'll get 50% off your annual membership. We would love to have you join us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.